Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. One more good morning to you, church. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to meet me in the letter of Jude and in verses 24 to 25 this morning as we come to the natural conclusion of this letter that we've been in for uh, the past three weeks. And as we conclude it today, we come to the most well-known sentence in the letter of Jude, a sentence you may have heard uh, many times in your life. For good reason, it's the most well-known sentence. We hope you've benefited from this series, though we've established that the letter of Jude is arguably one of the most neglected letters in all of the New Testament. I hope that you've seen how relevant it is in a special way for our life here today in Chicago in 2023. And a brief word of warning, it would be just as big of a mistake if after having now discovered the great wealth that's in the book of Jude to then set it aside again and to let it accumulate dust on our bookshelves, uh, the bookshelves of our mind. We need to keep this on the forefront of our minds, the, the argument that Jude has been laying out here. Well, Jude concludes on especially sacred ground, on a doxology. And doxologies are, one way we can think of them is as crumbs that have been dropped from the dining room table of heaven. We get a snapshot into what's happening right now in the throne room of God where his glory and praise is being sung. And I want to speak from the subject this morning, pressing on toward the goal, pressing on toward the goal. So let's enjoy these two verses together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have ordained this day, the first day of the week, the Lord's day, as a day when us saints on earth unite with the saints in heaven to do the thing that they are already doing, and that is to praise your name. We pray that even now, as we listen to the words of your book, that the book would remain open to us, that we would see more light in it, that we would have open minds and open hearts to receive your implanted word with meekness. Lord, we love your word. We don't love it the way we ought, so we pray now that this too would be worship and that it would be pleasing in your sight. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever considered how important goal setting is for all of life? You might have personal goals for your life. You might say, I want to work out this many times every week. I want to do this as a person. You might have goals for your family and say, "Uh, we want to go on this many uh, long weekend trips this year. We have goals for our family, and this is what we do. You might have organizational goals. We want the business to be at this point by this time next year. We set goals. 
And you might have professional goals. I want to get to this job by the age of 30 or something like that. Goals give us a sense of vision and mission. They give us something to set our minds and our, and our eyes on and say, we want to get there. We're moving in a single direction. This is what goals do. And if we don't set goals, we run the risk of sort of always, we're always moving, but we're not actually making progress toward anything. We feel like we're spinning our tires. There, there seems to be something going on, but where are we going? This is the risk we run if we don't have a clear sense of what goals we have in mind. This applies wherever we might be. A business without goals is on a slow, maybe a quick path to foreclosure. There, there's no direction for the business. As a parent, if you don't have a goal for raising not just a good kid, but a good adult, you'll simply do just that. You'll just raise a, a big kid who still lives at home. If you don't have a goal for your university. You're not actually building into your students. You're just puffing them up with knowledge. We need to have a goal for what we're trying to do at university. And a church without a goal is simply a social club. And a social club is really no church at all. A church, the church, has a goal that it is pressing on toward. It has a goal. And Jude has been telling us in this book what the goal of the church is. And friends, you know it at this point, it's been three weeks. What is the goal of the church but to contend for the gospel? This is what Jude is trying to get us to do, is to contend for the gospel. Here's our mission. Here's our vision. So that's, that's the what of the mission. That's what we're supposed to do. But here's the question I think Jude wants to help us answer this morning. Why is this the goal that we are to pursue? Why is it so important that Jude says that we need to contend for the gospel that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Well, he gives us a very subtle answer here in this doxology, but it's also a splendid answer. And, and this is the answer that I think he gives us. The goal of contending is the glory of God. This is the goal of our mission. It's the glory of God. If we contend for God's glory, we're setting our sights. We're setting our direction in the right path. This is the vision he has for us. Why? Because God has always been glorious, and the gospel itself is glorious, and the new heaven and the new earth that we are to inherit, that too is glorious. This is where we are headed, is toward the glory of God. If we get this right, friends, we're not going to contend in vain. We're not going to run in vain. But if we get this wrong, we might find ourselves in this bewildering position of being like, God, we're trying so hard to, to be fruitful for you on this planet but we don't sense that there's any movement in our life together as a church. The goal of contending is the glory of God. Well, Jude gives us two reasons, I think, in this text why we should press on toward the goal of the glory of God. First, God's work, God's work, and God's worth is the second reason. First, God's work, and then second, God's worth. And so that's how we'll spend the remainder of our time. Let's begin in verse 24, where we look at God's work. Notice the verbs here in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now this is a classic doxological formulation by Jude. 
This is how great doxologies begin. He's ascribing praise to God. Now, you might have heard this word doxology time and time again, but do you have a useful working definition? Uh, I think it's good that we would have one. So here's how I'd define doxology. A doxology is a declaration of glory and praise to the triune God for his infinite nature and his unrivaled works. We are glorifying in the one who is glorious as we pronounce a doxology to, to God. To what God? To the triune God. Why? For who he is and what he's done. Again, these are like crumbs drops from the dining room table of heaven. We're getting these little foretastes of how amazing God is in these doxologies. We're on especially sacred ground when we look at these all over the scriptures. Now, Jude, he would have been very familiar with doxologies. He most likely would have heard them several times a week in the synagogue before he started following Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He would have heard doxologies maybe to begin the call to worship at the synagogue, but almost certainly always at the end of synagogue worship. So in some sense, he's borrowing from his Jewish roots, and he's now pronouncing a Christological, a Christ-centered doxology. Here's one that he would have been familiar with from our Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Amen to that. Jude would have been familiar with doxologies. He's not the first one to write a doxology, and he hasn't been the last one to write a doxology. These things have existed because God has always been glorious. Now, beloved, if you've been with us for the past three weeks, you'll recognize how remarkable this is at this point in the letter. Think about it. Jude is writing to a church and in the midst of the church, there are people perverting the gospel. They are perverting the gospel into sensuality, and they're denying the Lord Jesus Christ. We've established, have we not, that there's kind of a bad situation going on at the church. And what does Jude say? He says, even though this is going on, praise be to God. There has never been a circumstance when, pra when praise of God is inappropriate for Christians. When church seems to be going great, praise God. When church seems to be going like a train wreck, praise God. Our circumstances do not determine whether or not God is worthy of all of our praise and worship. In the midst of people perverting the gospel in your midst, he is still worthy of being praised. Not because it's been perverted, but simply because he is God and he is good. I wonder if that defines our lives. If when things are going well, we praise God. You might be able to pile up a hundred reasons this morning why you might want to grumble and moan about how challenging life is. It doesn't diminish that life can be extraordinarily difficult. But God is always worthy of praise regardless of the circumstances that happen in our lives. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ. Well, the glorious God does glorious things. 
And I drew your attention to the two things that he does in verse 24. The first thing he does, he's able to keep us from stumbling. This is his first work. Now look again at verse 1. We, we already established in the letter of Jude that we are kept for Jesus Christ. He's already said, you're kept. End of story. Verse 6, he says that he is able to keep the fallen angels under control until the final judgment. He's able to keep them under control. And now he is able to keep us from stumbling. Jude has sort of been stacking the deck already to say, whatever comes, we know that God is able to keep us. But here's the question. What are we tempted to stumble over, right? He doesn't exactly tell us what we're tempted to stumble over here. A few suggestions here. Maybe it's the false teaching. Our minds are susceptible, friends. You might think you're the smartest person in your family or maybe the church, and you might be, but we are susceptible to stumbling over false teaching. Why? Because false teachers are subtle. They creep in, to use Jude's language. They, they, they disguise themselves as sheep. They're wolves. So we might be tempted to stumble over false teaching. If it's not the false teaching itself, it might be the outflow of the false teaching. We might be tempted to stumble over the sensuality, the immorality that he has described in this book. Because doctrine always affects devotion. And if you have the wrong teaching, you're not going to be devoted to God in the right way. This is the whole teaching of the scriptures. Maybe we're tempted to actually stumble over the person of Jesus Christ and over his work. Don't let anyone tell you that all of the teachings of Jesus are easy to swallow. There are hard teachings in the Bible that are from the, the mouth of our Lord. Let the dead bury the dead. Whoever wants to come over me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We might be tempted to stumble over the person and the words of Jesus Christ, but he's able to keep us from stumbling over them and over him. Maybe we're tempted to stumble over the, the demands of the gospel. Christ has set us free from sin, so that we might not sin anymore. One of the best evidences of sin forgiven is sin forsaken. And this is what the gospel often demands of us, is to forsake our sin. And we might be tempted to trip over these expectations that God has of us. Whatever this stumbling block is, we can agree it's not good. But the promise is he's able to keep us from stumbling. Praise be to God though many nets might have been drawn for you to trip over, though someone might dig a hole for you to fall into and push you in it, though Satan might be tempting you beyond what you think you can bear, God is able to cut the nets that you would trip over. God is able to fill in the holes that someone has dug for you. God is able to make that person fall into the hole that they dug for you. And God is able to crush Satan under your feet. He is able to keep you from stumbling. Sometimes, friends, I think this requires just as much faith to believe that God is able to keep us from stumbling as it is to believe that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. You think, I've stumbled so much in my life. How could I really believe that God is able to keep me from stumbling? Well, he can and he will depend on Christ. Depend on Christ. It's with this confidence pulsing in our spiritual blood that we can join John Newton in that great fourth stanza of amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. 
Just grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. How does Jude know that God is able to keep him from stumbling? How do you know today that God is able to keep you from stumbling? Because he's brought you thus far. Left to our own devices, none of us would be sitting in here this morning. He has brought us safe thus far, and surely this is evidence that he will bring us home. Jude would have to agree with the Apostle Paul that he who began a good work in us is faithful to bring it to completion. God God does not grow weary. He doesn't get tired of the work that he's doing in us. He doesn't give up on it. He is faithful to bring it to completion. He's able to keep us from stumbling. And brothers and sisters, this might seem like an abstract principle, but he doesn't keep you from stumbling so that he can put you in some heavenly trophy case so that people can walk by and admire. He keeps you so that he can have you in covenant relationship. God is making us his people and we are his people and he is our God. He's keeping us so that he can have us. Well, that's the first work. He's able to keep us. And because he's able to keep us, he's able to do the second work. Look again at verse 24. He's able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is why we should glorify God. Now, there is a, there's pushback. I wonder if you've heard this from people. There's pushback these days to the traditional presentation of a bride by her father at wedding ceremonies. The logic sort of goes like this. Well, this is just residue from the patriarchy. She is a grown woman. She does not need anyone to give her away as if she uh, is her father's property, and we should not do this anymore. I think that's missing the point of what's happening in a wedding ceremony. The presentation of a bride isn't saying she belongs to her father and therefore he's giving her away as if he's giving away some object that he owns. The presentation of a bride is symbolic that all the people sitting in the congregation along with her father and her mother have shaped the young woman to who she is today. She's not a self-made woman just as much as the man sitting there crying on the altar is not a self-made man. She's presented by all these amazing people in her family who have shaped her into the beautiful bride that she is today. So the husband asks, how did you become so lovely? And the answer, of course, is that all of these people together, I'm a conglomerate of all of these people, they together have made me lovely. And so too, when we stand blameless before the presence of our father, And he asks us, how did you become so radiant? How did you become so blameless? How did you become so beautiful? All we can say is that Christ Jesus made us this way. Christ made us blameless. We didn't become blameless. We're not self-made blameless people, but he is in the process through sanctification of presenting us before the presence of his glory with great joy. Christ made us beautiful. And so even though our guilt and our sin, it piles as high as heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ flips the script on us because he who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
the blamelessness of Jesus Christ, the spotlessness of Jesus Christ. Does that excite you? Maybe you come here this morning and you think, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I feel like I should be, but praise God, I'm not who I once was. He has brought me thus far, and he does not give up on the work that he has started. He is making us into the likeness of his son. And therefore, the day of judgment is not a day of trepidation for Christians. It's not. It's a day of what? Of great joy. Not just joy, of great joy. Because he has made us blameless and he alone has made us blameless. He has declared us righteous through justification. And he is growing in us that righteousness through sanctification. Well, you say, okay, this is a nice thought that he's able to present us. But what does this actually mean for me right now? What does it mean that he is going to one day? This seems so future-oriented. Don't despair where you're at today. Again, I would love to chat with you if you feel like you're surpassing your checkpoints as a Christian so far in your life. My guess is if we all pooled together, we'd all say, we're not as far along in the journey as we'd like to be. Don't despair that. Don't despair the growth that you feel like you haven't yet attained because Christ is able to present you blameless. He's transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. He doesn't let half-baked holiness into heaven, and so he's not going to leave us in our sin. That's one way we could work this out in our lives. Let's also recognize that our holiness glorifies God. Your holiness has a purpose to it. He's not just looking to make little nice kids that sit still at the restaurant so that he does, you know, we don't embarrass him as our heavenly father. Our holiness actually glorifies him. It brings him much praise, and it's actually also, it's missional. When people recognize that those people, they're set apart for God and for his purposes, they're going to ask us for a reason for our hope. Our holiness is missional, it glorifies God, and it helps us not to despair where we're at in our lives. Well, you say, okay, is this Jude? Is Jude the only one who thinks that we are going to be presented blameless? Well, our righteousness and our spotlessness in Christ is so sure is so certain that it's not just a promise, but we actually have a picture of it in the book of Revelation. Check this out. There's a doxology that starts like this. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You're like, okay, that's a nice wedding dress. It's symbolic that we have been perfected by Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ. So we don't just have a promise that this is going to happen. John, through the revelation that Christ gives him, gives us a picture. This is as good as done. This is the marvelous thing about the book of Revelation is the way that he goes about telling us these things. It's done before it's written. We are already declared blameless. We have a picture of it before the great wedding feast of heaven. What a beautiful picture this is. We must not despair where we're at in our lives. So here's the the logic of Jude so far. As we contend for the gospel, God is transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, and he gets the glory. He gets the glory. 
This is what he gets through our lives that are dedicated to him. And this helps us pray the prayer that Christ taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know, O oh God, that you're able to make us blameless, so help us to walk in blamelessness today. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Here's the goal of our contending. This is, this is it. Jude is telling us. It's the glory of God. The glory of God. Well, this is just the first reason why we should glorify him, his work. He's keeping us. He's presenting us. But I love the way Jude finishes this letter in verse 25 because he focuses on God's worth. God's worth. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Judah's saying here, praise God for who he is right now. Praise God for who he's always been and praise God for who he will always be. God has never become more glorious He's never going to diminish in his glory. He's always been glorious. This is the very worth of God. The very substance of his character is glorious. So this is Jude saying, yes, it's good to glorify God for his work, what he's done. He's able to keep us and present us. Praise God. But let's not confuse his work with his worth. Even if he didn't keep us in and present us. He would still be worthy of all glory and honor simply for who he is. It's not just what he does for us that makes him glorious. So you ask yourself, why should I love God? And the simple answer is not firstly on account of his work, but on account of his worth. Some of you young men are newly married or going to be married soon. And there's a little how should I call it? There's a little test that your wife might put you through early on in your marriage. And let me give you, you know, the answers before you take the test. The question goes something along the lines of this. You know, you're enjoying a nice dinner together and she asks you, why do you love me? Why do you love me? You better not say anything else than simply because you're lovely. Because if you say, well, I love you because you're so beautiful. I love you because you have great upward mobility at your company. You, you know, this is great. Dual incomes, no kids. We're, we're a dink couple. You know, we have, you have all these great things about you. Well, your love, if that's the final location where your love resides, then your love is insecure. Because what if she gets in some major physical accident and she doesn't look the same way she looked on her wedding day? What if she gets fired from that job? God forbid. And you don't have that great income that you once had. You better say she's lovely simply because she's lovely. And you love her simply because she's worth loving. And this here is what Jude is saying. We glorify God simply because of who God is. He's lovely because he's lovely. And we should love him because he's worth loving. So who is this God? Who is this God that's worth loving? Well, it leads, another, leads to another question. How do we describe the indescribable? I think we do so by sort of crafting a resume using God's own words for God. 
What do you do in a resume? You simply start stacking your best accomplishments, the best people you know as your references. You stack all of the good things about you so that someone might hire you. Let's look at God's resume. Here it begins at the top, God. That's the top of God's resume. God, the only God. To the only God is how he begins this resume. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is who he knits himself to in love. He's the one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the only God. And he is the God who most fully reveals himself in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is who God is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the triune God, and the crucified God who reveals himself fully on the cross. This is who the only God is. So with Jeremiah, we can say, there is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great, and your name is great in might. Oftentimes, when I chat with Muslims, they say that we, are, we Christians are polytheists. They say, how can you worship three gods? That, that doesn't make sense. You have to tip your hat to them that they are monotheists, but don't let, them call, don't let them call us polytheists. Take them to Jude 25, to the only God. Jude has no confusion. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we can, with Moses in Deuteronomy, say, hear, O church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And with Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, we can say, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We worship one God. To the only God be glory. Don't let anyone trip up over the fact that we, we worship one God who eternally exists in three persons. Only God can put this at the top of his resume. There are 46 people who can put president of the United States at the top of their resume, but there's only one God who can ever put the only God at the top of his resume. He's lovely, friends, because he's supreme. There is none like him in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Well, that's the top of his resume. We move now to the second item. He is the only God, our Savior. The only God, our Savior. This is who he is. The triune God is our Father. Now, notice earlier in the letter, he says, you are uh, beloved in God the Father. So he specifies when he's talking about God the Father. But here he says, he's the only God, our Savior. As if to say, the triune God is our Savior, which is exactly right, by the way. We can both call the second person of the Trinity, Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, that is true. But we can also ascribe the work of salvation to the one triune God himself. I think Herman Bovink helps us immensely here. He says, the work of salvation is one whole, a work of God from beginning to end. But there are three high moments in it, election, forgiveness, and renewal. And these three point to a threefold cause in the divine being. That is, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The point I'm trying to make here is that the, the triune God is our Savior. Yes, we can both talk of Christ and the triune God as our Savior. 
So with Isaiah, we, we marvel at the fact that he reveals himself this way in Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Savior. God alone is Savior. So he's lovely because he's the only God. He's lovely because he's also our Savior. Now notice, and this is critical, that we offer our worship how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 25. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you, re- if you remove this clause from the doxology, you could actually bring this doxology to the local synagogue up in Niles, and they could pronounce this doxology. But he introduces this clause through Jesus Christ, and it makes it explicitly Christian. This is how we offer our praise and our worship to God, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are so many things in the Christian walk that become so assumed that we actually forget what their origin is. So some people think that when you pray in Jesus' name, it's like this magic pixie dust that makes your prayer effective. It's not exactly how praying in the name of Jesus works. We pray in the name of Jesus to recognize the best of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God, but because of Christ's righteousness, we have boldness to go into the presence of God. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name and through Jesus. So we don't just tack that phrase on like it's spiritual pixie dust, but we pray through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, again, is what makes him lovely. Well, the next thing on his resume is that he is glorious. To him be glory. Now, to say that God is glorious is to ascribe all worth to God. There is no one and nothing more glorious than him. This is to say, you receive all of the credit. And I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it again before the end of the service. God's always been glorious. He was glorious before the foundation of the world. In other words, he was glorious, to use Jude's language, before all time. Before we started counting Minutes and seconds and hours and years. God was glorious. He was glorious when he spoke and creation came to be. Every planet in the the universe, by the word of his power, he was glorious at the creation of the world. He was glorious all over in the story of Israel. He redeems them with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. He's glorious in the story of Israel. He's glorious For those who have the eyes of faith, at that great moment when the word of God puts on flesh and comes to dwell with us at the incarnation, the wise men see his glory, they worship him. The angels see his glory, they worship him. He never ceased to be glorious. He was glorious in his life and ministry here on earth. And yes, even though it was the most brutal form of death, he was glorified on that cross on Calvary. Because in that moment, the most glorious thing happens. God executes justice and extends mercy all in the same moments. Who but a glorious God could do such a thing like that at the cross? He's glorious, friends, at his resurrection when he pronounces through his resurrection that death could not hold him. Death does not have power over the Son of God. And he's glorious in his appearance to the disciples and to more than 500 brothers. And he's glorious in his ascension to heaven where now he sits and he rules and reigns in glory. 
Christ is glorious right now as we sit and as we speak. And he's going to come again in glory with the clouds. And when he resurrects us, he will rule forever and ever in glory. This is why we should have so much confidence that as we contend for the glory of God, we are contending for the right thing. This is why we contend for the gospel of the glory of God because he's always been and he always will be glorious. Well, we're about halfway through the resume. It's a pretty good resume at this point, but he adds more. He says he's majestic. He's majestic. God is objectively beautiful. Say what you want about beauty standards. God surpasses them all, and he is objectively beautiful. He is lovely because he is beautiful. He's sovereign. That's where That's a reflection on the word dominion. To him be dominion. He is sovereign. He has sovereign control over all things. He owns all things and he's at the mercy of no one. So his sovereignty and his dominion, this is one of the reasons why we should love God. There's no one more powerful than him. And he's also authoritative. To him be authority. Authority to make divine decisions, to give orders. So if dominion is his right to rule, then his authority is his power to rule. And again, these might seem like abstract concepts, but this is what makes God lovely. It's simply who he is. Do you love God? Do you love this transcendent God? Or have you fallen in love with a God who you've made in your own image, who has no transcendence at all? The final word he adds to this is that he is eternal before all time and now and forever. We have so much confidence to contend for the glory of God. This is why this is our mission as a church. So let me ask you, is there any transcendence in your worship? When you're at home and you're worshiping in private, is there any sense of awe and majesty and wonder at who God is? When you come here on Sundays, is there any transcendence in your worship? With your family worship at home, do you just, you know, do you just walk into the presence of God as if it's a casual conversation with your neighbor? Or is there any sense of transcendence that we are engaging with the God of glory and majesty and dominion and authority? Our worship ought to have some transcendence. And brothers and sisters, this is what our neighbors are looking for. They're looking for an encounter with the divine. They're looking for an encounter with transcendence. I can tell you this because that was precisely what I was looking for when I stumbled into a church at the age of 18. I was looking for a transcendent experience and the gospel surpassed what I was looking for. And it's easy to throw the first stone at our brothers and sisters around the city who are abusing prescription drugs and they're using fentanyl and heroin and meth. It's easy to... throw stones at these people, but they're trying to use these things to access something transcendent. They're just doing it in the wrong way. And we actually have the thing that they're looking for, an encounter with the transcendent God. And maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you came in here having really no affiliation or allegiance to Jesus, but you are looking for a spiritual transcendent experience. And can I assure you that you will never find one as fulfilling, as true as the transcendent God himself. 
Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the transcendent God, and he is extending himself to you. Just yesterday, I was reading in the New York Times, and I saw an advertisement for the residences at St. Regis, Chicago. And this is the tagline, live high above it all, right in the middle of it all. Live high above it all. St. Regis, they're saying, we've got something transcendent for you. You can live in these beautiful condos. Oh, by the way, one to five bedroom homes from 850K to $18.5 million. Live high above it all, right in the middle of it all. The marketing geniuses know that we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to be transcendent. We want to experience glory. And we should experience glory, but not our own glory, the glory of God. This is what we were made for. Have you encountered this transcendent God? Have you encountered him? And and is there any transcendence in our worship? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. The goal of contending is the glory of God. And I've probably never met a man who contended as hard for the gospel as a man by the name Robert Coleman. Robert Coleman might be a name that you recognize. He's the author of a book that sold over 3 million copies called The Master Plan of Evangelism. He lived around the time of Billy Graham. And I went with a professor of mine in college to Wilmore, Kentucky, where this guy lived, Robert Coleman. And I was really excited to meet him. He, his whole life was one of contending for the glory of God. And something amazing happened when I met Robert Coleman. Uh, the most amazing thing wasn't the fact that he had sold millions and millions and millions of books in his lifetime. The most amazing thing was not the fact that he had become a world-class artist in his old age. He was about 90 at this time. There were paintings all over his house. He was an amazing painter. Those weren't the amazing things. The most amazing thing wasn't the fact that he was very approachable and I felt like I could just strike up a conversation with him. No, the most amazing thing about Robert Coleman when I met him is he told me and my friend Jerry and my brother Trig, he said, I'm trying to memorize every single doxology in the book of Revelation so that when I get to heaven, I don't have to learn any of the songs. I can just join in and worship. It's a beautiful story by this old man who had contended his whole life for the glory of God. And you better believe that for him, the connection between the glory of God and contending for the gospel went hand in hand. He was effective as an evangelist. He was, an effective, he was effective as a man of God because he had an incredibly high view of God and he couldn't wait to pour out his precious ointment on his feet. We exist to contend for the gospel of the glory of God. And Robert Coleman stands as an example and we could use a thousand other examples of how we are to do that. Now we missed one word. It's a word that Jude almost adds in there impulsively. Maybe you've felt this word come out of you before. It's that beautiful little word, amen. It's a curious little word, isn't it? What does this mean? Let's look at what the Orthodox Catechism has to say about this. What does that little word, amen, express? The answer is that amen means this is sure to be. It is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. 
This is what amen expresses. That God, you're more willing to keep me and to present me blameless before the presence of your glory. You're more able to do that than I even want it. That's the kind of God we approach in prayer. Is one who's more willing to do for us what we might not even seek him in prayer to do. Amen. Amen. This is a declaration of faith and a declaration of who God is. This will change the way you pray if we pray with this kind of confidence in our amen. Amen is a holistic response to a holy God. It's, it's saying, we give you everything, O oh God. You deserve everything. So brothers and sisters, let's add our amen to the letter of Jude. Let's add our amen to the worship that's existed before all time. And if you're in here this morning and you have not met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, hear me soberly, you must be born again. You must be born again in order to encounter the living God. Don't leave this building before talking with someone. And I'm sure 30 people in this building would love to talk to you about what it means to be born again by faith in the resurrected Savior. And if you're in Christ here this morning, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whether you walk to work or whether you bike to work or whether you take the train to work, walk and go to work for the glory of God. Whether you're washing dishes or folding laundry, do all for the glory of God. Whether you're praying in the Holy Spirit or whether you're playing with your kids, do all for the glory of God of God. May God give us grace to contend for this glorious gospel, the glorious gospel of our glorious God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.